But I don't, I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. Or, but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. I'm James. This is episode 325 of the Body Serve and a very special presentation, one of our history episodes that we've been teasing for a while. We've dropped little nuggets here and there, and some of you came very close to guessing who it's about. We said that it's about Czech tennis. We said it's about an individual player deep dive. And while you know that I, Jonathan in particular, love Jana Novotna. This is actually about her longtime coach, Hanna Manlikova. Yes, when we mentioned the subject was Czech tennis, it was vague enough because the country's history in tennis is so rich and so vast, it could have been about dozens of players, really. Why, Jonathan, since this was your idea, why did you want to do an entire episode about Hanna Manlikova? One, Listeners over the years have asked for this. Multiple listeners have asked for this. And I remember thinking about my initiation into tennis when I first became a fan of tennis and Yana being one of the first players that I really loved. And Hannah was always there as her coach. And then I would go back and look at historical records and see her results from the 80s and always wanting to know more about how her career played out within that great rivalry of navratilova Evert, Manlikova being the player outside of maybe Gulagam to really make an impression on those two. But right. even then, Ivan's... Austin early on. A lot of Ivan's success was in Australia and mostly in the 70s. Yes. I just know, first of all, I know that she won the US Open... This is going to reveal something about me. She won the U.S. Open in the month that I was born. So I was always interested in her. When I was younger, I had no idea who she was. And then becoming a tennis fan, finding out that she won four slams in that uh, incredibly dominant period of Chrissy and Martina, and then learning that she won those slams against the best, right? She truly threatened that duopoly at the top of the game. And then just realizing that I rarely heard about her when when tennis was spoken about. I knew so little of her and that she seemed to be rather misunderstood in a way that uh, misunderstood by Americans. And it seemed mutual for a while. It seemed like she didn't really get Americans either. The other impetus for this episode is trying to get a better sense of the history of Czech tennis. Throughout covering tennis on this show, we've seen so many Czech players come to the fore. This year, we talked ad nauseum about Karolina Muhova. Vandrosheva won Wimbledon this year. Petra Kvitova has won Wimbledon twice. They're all these Czech players that have done well individually, say nothing for the group success that they've had at the Fed Cup level, now the Billie Jean King Cup level. And this is not new. And so my fandom in tennis, being a fan of Jana, and then trying to look beyond that further back to try and see how this all came to be, and then also learn a lot about Manlikova herself. And so, as with any episode that we do on a player or a topic, 
this won't focus solely on Hana. There'll be a lot of context given to her career, to Czech tennis, to Czech politics, historically, to paint a more fully formed picture. The 80s were such a rich time in tennis history. They were truly the peak of tennis's popularity in the U.S. and probably the West in general. Hana was a massive part of that, always predicted to be the next somebody, the next number one, the one who would take over after Everton Martina and Navratilova retired. Martina kept playing at an extremely high level. The minor complication of Steffi Graf appeared in 1985. But why don't we start with Mandlikova's resume and then talk about kind of the beginnings of her career. Hanna is by far the greatest player never to reach number one. In fact, she never reached number two. Perhaps there are listeners out there who could question that. You know, I mean, you say that and I'm immediately thinking, oh, my God, have I left us? Have we left ourselves open to attack (laughs) or say something spurious? But if that is, in fact, true, if that holds, then it's also kind of serendipitous, not for Petra, but (laughs) for uh, continuity purposes that Petra Kvitova would be the player of this generation who is the best to never get to number one. Yes. Another Czech player. Let's get into Hanna's resume. As you mentioned, she's a four-time major champion, winning twice in Australia, once each at the French Open and the US Open. She made two Wimbledon finals. That is the one that she really wanted to win. She made a total of eight slam finals in her career. And as you mentioned, she was seen as the player to topple Christian Martina. She's one of only seven women to win majors on hard courts, clay, and grass. Can you name the other six? No. If you're listening, pause and see if you can. But I'm going to put you on the spot here. um, Off the top, Serena, Mm -hmm. Martina, Chrissy. Mm -hmm. Three. um, Billie Jean. No. Oh, shit. Grass. Those were were grass titles. Uh, Steffi. Yes. Justine? No, no, she never won grass. She never won Wimbledon. Oh my god. Two-time finalist. No, I can't. I'm giving up. This is embarrassing. The other ones are Ash Barty. Wow. And Maria Sharapova. W- okay. I should, really should, I did not prepare for a quiz. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I did not put that there. You did it. So you left mm. yourself open there. But there is a great irony of Hanna's career in that she was an elite serve and volleyer and never won Wimbledon. She did win the Australian Open on grass, of course. But she, I mean, she played on grass in the era of Martina Navratilova. That was no easy feat. It's always strange to me looking at players' records during this time, and even the time, the years that precede this, because the surface has changed on two of the biggest tournaments, one after 77, and then again 10 years later. The US Open transitioning from clay to hard, and then the Australian Open moving from grass to hard court. And so you see Chrissy Everett's record. And not only did she win seven clay titles at Roland Garros, but 10 overall. She won 10 of her 18 on clay because three of those were won at the U.S. Open really? when it was played on clay. But this, these are the things and we don't... And that wasn't a long period that the U.S. Open was on clay, right? I did my reading and I was so certain of that statement. And then with just one glance, you have me questioning my entire <laughs> reality. So we're back from break after having fact-checked that. Yes. 
I knew it was a, sh a pretty short window that the U.S. Open was on clay because it was grass, clay, then hard. But Chrissy won three of those clay U.S. Opens. Right. So my point here is Chrissy did a lot of winning on clay, more so than you would think. But she also won on grass. Hannah won on grass, just not at Wimbledon. It's, it's kind of foolhardy to look at tennis back then through a present day lens with absolution. Do you know what I mean? Okay. Hanna made a total of 52 WTA finals, winning 27 titles. She was the first ever number one ranked junior in 1978 when the ITF started doing rankings for juniors, and she held that ranking alongside Yvonne Lindell. She made four straight slam finals between 1980 and 1981, and this is another one of those things that gets you tripped up when you're looking back at old records, especially if you're looking at Wikipedia. Because the slams are listed from <laughs> Australia first to the U.S. Open. But in those days, Australia was the last slam of the year. Yes. And say nothing for the years where there were two Australian Opens. So uh, Martina Navratilova actually won six Grand Slam titles in a row. But if you look at the chart, it doesn't look like that. She is known as the streak breaker. That's from Bud Collins. And what Bud is referring to there is four pretty impressive well incredible streaks that hannah ended she ended chris everett's 72 match win streak on clay at the 1981 french open she ended martina's 54 match streak in oakland and then martina's 56 match streak at the 1987 australian open and then just for good measure just prior she had also beaten steph she had also ended steffi graf's 23 match win streak at the 1986 roland garros a sign of things to come, uh, one of Steffi's several long win streaks. That was an early one. Her four major titles coming at the 1980 Australian Open, beating Wendy Turnbull. 1981 at the French Open, beating Sylvia Hanika. The big one. This will be one of the runs for the ages. Winning the 1985 US Open, beating Everett in the semis, Navratilova in the finals. And then at her final slam triumph in Australia... 1987, again beating Martina, 7576. We'll get to it a little bit later on in terms of how Hannah was talked about, spoken about, thought of. But her early career results, particularly in 1980 and 1981, show that she had arrived in women's tennis. And at that specific particular time, you had Tracy Austin, you had Andrea Yeager, you had Martina, you had Chrissy. And here she was, with sports writers talking about her, Hannah, as the one, the one with the most talent, to be able to break up this duopoly. Before we get into Hannah's career and early life, please indulge me. I want to take you through a little bit of Czech tennis history. I've noticed throughout the reading, from the mid-20th century up to today, journalists want to know why are the Czechs so good at tennis? They've been writing about it for damn near a century. <laughs> Why? How can a country like the Czech Republic produce so many top tennis players when countries so much bigger struggle to do so? Uh, and some of the tennis superpowers, the, the old tennis superpowers are struggling. And the point, is, <laughs> the point is, this is not a new phenomenon. This dates back to when you had those big four tennis powers. And it was them alone. Yes. You had Australia, you had Britain, you had the US, France, 
You also had South Africa for a bit. Yes, but you had those four countries winning the Davis Cup for about 75 years with no interruption. But there was Czechoslovakia for decades producing top tennis talent with not nearly the same resources. Once we sort of look through some of the history, it's not totally surprising. Czechoslovakia was a highly industrialized country before becoming a satellite state of the Soviet Union with a great sporting infrastructure and athletes who were skilled in many different sports. Sports Illustrated wrote that, allegedly, I don't know if this is true, (laughs) that tennis was being played all the way back in medieval times in the Czech lands. And when we say the Czech lands, we're referring to this historic region of Bohemia and Moravia. The first lawn tennis tournament appeared in the Czech lands only two years after Wimbledon in 1879. At that time, uh, Czechoslovakia or the Czech lands were part of the kingdom of Austria-Hungary. And Austria-Hungary saw tennis as dangerous. It saw it as a way for Czech people to assert a national identity. And it indeed was dangerous. And we we know this about sports throughout history. What what is it that you're saying? That sport and politics were tethered together inextricably? (laughs) It's often a way for people to express a shared cultural or ethnic identity. It's a way for states to impose those types of identities. But yeah, uh, people excelling at tennis within a large kingdom gave rise to national identities all over the, the world. In 1918, after World War I, um, many of the old kingdoms and empires of Europe collapsed. Czechoslovakia becomes an independent country. Now we have the Czechoslovakian Lawn Tennis Association, and new tennis clubs are popping up all over the country. Fast forward to World War II, Czechoslovakia is invaded by Nazi Germany early on. It's known as the Protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia. But after the war, there is a lot of political upheaval. Czechoslovakia was one of the only countries in Europe that uh, popularly elected a communist government. They elected the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia. There was fear of this in other European countries, especially Italy, in 1946. And then in 1948, the Communist Party organized a coup and became the sole political party in the country. At that time, in 1948, the country becomes a satellite state of the Soviet Union called the Czechoslovak Socialist Republic. It has a planned economy and... Tennis becomes part of this uh, famed Soviet sport model, where sport is centralized, it's hierarchical, it's state-owned, and it has ideological purposes. As a satellite state of the Soviet Union, sport becomes incorporated into the citizens' daily lives, and this is by design, right? It's part of the, quote, triangle theory, where the more people who get trained and participate in sport it's the more likely that they'd be able to produce world-class athletes. And then this this becomes a, a statement of the strength of the political regime and system. In the old days, pre-1948, tennis was seen as a bourgeois sport, and the perception of tennis begins to change as it's kind of subsumed by the new state. And it actually becomes more egalitarian. It becomes easier for working-class people to participate in sport. It becomes part of their daily lives. Previously, it was something that they were restricted from doing. There was no mass access to tennis playing for working class people. 
And so now, under this political regime, this political ideology, the focus has shifted. It offers far more opportunities than before, but the catch is that it is heavily controlled. They expect athletes who represent the country internationally to, quote, have a worldview fully clarified. And those athletes are going out into the world and acting as symbols of the socialist man, it was called. And they were expected to demonstrate certain political ideas. And this is in the context of the Cold War, both sides feeling that the other side is encroaching and trying to spread their dominance in their political and economic systems. I think it's important to realize here or recognize that this was not unique to the Soviet Union. It's something that has happened throughout history everywhere and to this day. Governments across the world use sport to fit its own ideology, period. However, after 1948, there was a large wave of what they called tennis migration out of the country or defection after the conditions changed uh, the Czechoslovakian Davis Cup team withdrew for five years but there were some great players in that period Karol Kozluch was the first great Czech tennis player in the 20s and 30s he was the winner of three U.S. pro titles and one French pro title which were considered the professional slams of the day but the true superstar of Czech tennis in that mid-20th century period was Jaroslav Drobny. He defected shortly after the coup d'etat in 1949 while he was in Switzerland. He was stateless for a little while and then was finally given citizenship by Egypt and later in the UK. But when he won his first slam, he won it with Egypt. He won the French Open in 1951 and 52. He also won Wimbledon and this is a tidbit for later. He has the same split of major titles as Jan Kodish, two French Opens and one Wimbledon. Drobny was a great player, though. He won 130 titles of various kinds, including three straight Italian championships. He has the most clay titles of any player, which is more than 90. <laughs> and he was also an ice hockey player. A very good one. He won the silver medal with Czechoslovakia at the 1948 Olympics in St. Moritz, scoring nine goals. So even from 1948, 1949, there was this great tradition of Czech tennis building and the tradition of athletes who could bounce between different sports in Excel. A point of this as well is to highlight the great Czech players that even predated Martina Navratilova. I think a lot of people think of Czech tennis as having really started with Martina. Right. And that's not a knock on her. It's to give these often overlooked players their flowers. Of course, the other major Czech star of that early period is Jan Kodish, who in the Open era, in 1970 and 71, wins two French Opens. He won that famous strange Wimbledon in 1973 when most of the top players boycotted due to uh, Nicky Pillich being banned by the ITF. And he also has two runner-up finishes at the U.S. Open to Smith and Newcomb. Through the 60s and 70s, you have Vera Sukova, who we'll talk about a little more later. Mother of Helena Sukova and Cyril Suk Jr. Yes, the third, I the believe. The third, maybe. Renata Tomanova, who was a two-time slam runner-up in the 70s. And then, of course, Martina, who became the blueprint. But back to the Czech system, 
As I mentioned, tennis started to lose that bourgeois reputation within the country and within the, the Eastern Bloc, which was really important. And a lot of that was helped by the team character of Davis Cup. That felt compatible to communism. But you also had on a local level so many clubs that were not elitist. Yes. That people could go and play that they belonged to. There was competition between the clubs. We know that Hanna Manlikova grew up at the Sparta Club. That's where she participated and, and learned her trade. It's the same club that Vera Sukova taught at. It's the same club that Martina trained at. And you imagine this major club churning out huge stars. And it was really quite modest. And the facilities were not not that great. And to this day, you still have that system pretty much in place whereby the current top Czech players come from that club system where Marketa Vondrosheva is winning Wimbledon and she's talking about having been been in contact with her Czech friends before that match, some of whom she grew up playing tennis at her local club with. And now they're ruling the lawns of Wimbledon <laughs> and the courts of Flushing Meadow. Hanna Manlikova is born in 1962 amid this period of de-Stalinization of Czechoslovakia, amid an economic downturn, because it turns out that the Soviet model wasn't quite compatible with Czechoslovakia because it was already industrialized. And when she was six years old, she experienced the Prague Spring, which she writes a little about in her book. And the Prague Spring is a period of about eight months in 1968, following the election of a prime minister called Alexander Dubček. Dubček attempted to partially decentralize the economy and loosen restrictions on certain civil liberties like speech and travel. The slogan was, quote, socialism with a human face. And of course, this was a threat to the Soviet Union, right? And so the response was to have a bunch of satellite countries invade Czechoslovakia. And for those eight months, there was great political turmoil and violence. Yes, the Soviets expected that they could overthrow this resistance in about four days. It lasted a further eight months into 1969. The Soviet, as you said, came in with tanks, came in with other Warsaw Pact countries, and eventually put down this resistance. Czechoslovakia remained a satellite state of the Soviet Union until 1989. This is a, an inflection point for Czech tennis in the 70s and beyond. Because we know Martina defected in 1975. We know that Ivan Lendl did as well, eventually. Hanna Manlikova talks extensively about what it was like to be an up-and-coming tennis player within the system, having seen Martina def defect, coming up alongside Ivan Lendl on a global stage at the same time, and going through that together, giving us her thoughts throughout her book about whether or not she ever felt like defecting. Yes. Now, we'll talk about this a lot, but she wrote the book in 1989 before the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Shortly before. before right, before right before the Velvet Revolution in Czech Republic. Uh, she is writing as someone with family in Czechoslovakia who has since left for Australia. And we don't know what she would have written in 1992, for example. It was fascinating to read that when it was written. It's not just Martina. It's not just Hannah, Ivan. It's also Martina Hingis, which is, right. I feel, right. something that a lot of folks don't know. She was born in Czechoslovakia. 
now known as Slovakia. Her mother is from the region which is now Czech Republic. And her family was directly affected by this Prague Spring because Martina's grandmother had property seized. They were, if you listen to Martina tell it, directly affected by this. So they were privileged. They were, and then they weren't. (laughs) And that directly influenced Martina's mother. First of all, she was named after Martina Navratilova. The the sole goal was to create a a tennis Mm -hmm. champion. And Melanie Molitor knew that she could not do that from within Czechoslovakia. Or she believed she couldn't. And so she married a wealthy Swiss man and defected overseas (laughs) with her eight-year-old daughter in tow. I, now, I know you're trying to tee up the next episode. Uh, you really <laughs> want to do this. But <laughs> back to Hannah. She grew up with a father who was an 11-time national champion in sprinting. Uh, Willem Mandlik. He sprinted in both the 200-meter and 100-meter. So he was uh, an important figure in athletics. He was respected. But they lived in a modest two-bedroom apartment on the western outskirts of Prague she started playing tennis with this homemade wooden racket, practicing against the wall of her living room. Like the stories you always hear, right? And she said that no one around me was pushing me, like you sometimes see today's parents doing. I was the one determined to become successful. And I found that this is a theme that you see across Czech tennis. Young players saying that my parents were supportive, but they weren't forcing me to do it. Supportive not forcing, but also going to great lengths to fulfill their child's ambitions. Right. Because there was a lot of struggle here. Yes. And that said, there was still some privilege within it because Willem had the cachet of being an Olympic sprinter for Czechoslovakia. So while they didn't have a lot of money, he did have some strings he could pull. Right. Within the sporting structure in Czechoslovakia. As you said, she enrolls in the Sparta Club in Prague. Kodish and Navratilova trained there. And even though it was a major club, it was an important club, it was Spartan. Get it? (laughs) It was utilitarian. Uh, Sports Illustrated said it was located in a, quote, grim industrial section of Prague. But she was able to thrive there. And for some time, when Hannah was about 13 years old, the family even moved into this small cottage on the grounds of the club, and her parents worked there to help fund her training. That's the same club, the Sparta Club, where Vera Sokova was a coach. This is somebody who was a finalist at Wimbledon in, I believe, 1962, who was a big-time tennis figure in Czechoslovakia. She ended up coaching at the Sparta Club for a long time, eventually becoming Martina Navratilova's coach at the club for a spell. She was the wife of Cyril Sook, as we said, who was the president of the Tennis Federation of Czechoslovakia, the parents of Helena Sukova. And Hanna talks a bit about, well, actually quite a bit in the book, about her difficult relationship with Helena Sukova and her father. Essentially describing Helena as a Nepo baby. Pretty uh, much. And as someone who was jealous and dishonest. And those are her words, not mine. One thing you'll learn about Hanuman Likova, if you read anything about her, especially from her playing days, is that she spoke her mind. <laughs> yes, that is a theme here. 
1975, Martina Navratilova leaves Czechoslovakia for what could have been forever. In 1975, they had no idea that the Soviet Union would collapse about 15 years later. Before defecting, Martina was able to negotiate a better split of prize money. So she was able to keep 80% of her prize money and send 20% back to the Czech Federation. She loved the U.S., right? Everyone knows that. She, she felt at home in the U.S. She got a lot of pressure and a lot of criticism from Czech officials. This eventually led to her defection in 1975. Of Martina's defection... Manlikova is quoted in the Washington Post in 1985, saying, quote, Martina is an American. If you read her book, you know that. I am a Czech. I love my country. I love being able to go home to see my family. But I know there is more in the world. I couldn't live there now because I have seen other places. I have my freedom to travel and to do what I want. Interestingly, in 1985, Manlikova was mainly living in the U.S. when she said that. But she was still a citizen of Czechoslovakia. Her family was still there and still dependent on exit visas if they wanted to come see her. Not only that, but you read Hannah's autobiography and she says multiple times that her brother and his wife came to a tournament or came to visit outside the country and brought one of their sons. And I kept wondering, well, why is one always being left behind? And then she goes on to explain in the book that an entire family could not travel together outside Czechoslovakia by design because they needed to have one, at least one member behind to ensure that you'd come back. Right. We found that you couldn't tell the story of Hanna Manlikova as an active tennis player and understand where she came from and what the struggles were during her career without understanding the shadow that Navratilova's defection cast on her and her playing career. Because at every turn, the focus is on her now and what is she going to do? The West is thinking, well, Martina did this. Is she next? The Czech Federation is really concerned that this, this player who is being touted as the one to beat Martina, to topple evil Martina who defected, that she might do the same thing too. Right. And this is a young girl who is going through this at that same time. Uh, not only is she said in the West to be the next Martina, in, at home, they're worried that she's going to defect like Martina did. And the initial reaction to Martina's defection was to tighten up control. But when Hanna and Ivan Lendl became prominent players internationally, they were able to negotiate a lot better deals because then the country was afraid of losing them. When Martina left the country... Her name was removed from newspapers. Nobody ever talked about her, From even from the Tennis Federation's historical documents. From the she clubs, didn't exist. her pictures were removed. And, of course, Czech people had access to radio from Western Europe, so they knew who Martina was. And you'll see that clearly when they go to the 1986 Fed Cup Finals in Prague, which was Martina's first re- ever return to Czechoslovakia. But I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. At the time, players were paying about 50% of their earnings to the government. Uh, Hanna talked about cashing checks outside of the country and then smuggling paper money back in. She once won a car at an event and said to the director, Hey, can you sell this for me? And I'll just take the cash. I'll take the money. 
She was critical of, of the red tape and the lack of freedom, but she said that the deprivation made her a better player, that, she, you know, she feels uh, strongly that she is Czech. She doesn't feel like she was, uh, that she missed anything and that it made her stronger and and fiercer as a competitor. Again, this is 1989 and this was written. She may feel differently. Looking back at it, no. Mm-hmm. In 1977... Hannah plays Wimbledon Juniors, losing her first match. And this was her very first time traveling outside of the Eastern Bloc, except for a very brief failed trip to Bari, Italy. In 1978, she travels for the first time to the United States with a team of Czech juniors, which included Ivan Lendl. We've mentioned his name a lot. That's because they really and truly came up together. She played the prestigious Orange Bowl under 16s and won it. She didn't like the lifestyle people's openness and brashness <laughs> and she was supposed to be on this tour of the u.s for a couple months and shortly after the orange bowl she said no mass while in new york city she tells this story of going to the airport and being like i need to leave i need to get on a plane showing up at the kiosk for the czech airlines and they're like we don't have any more room there's no more room on this plane and she pleads and pleads and pleads and something registered with the people at that airport because she said they found her a tiny little nook on that plane to go home. <laughs> at the time, it wasn't clear if she would ever get the chance to travel with the Tennis Federation again, right? If you defy them once, if you embarrass them, are you going to get another exit visa? A big difference here is that people, if you have any concept of visas in today's world, you think of it solely as, well, I need a visa to get into that country. Yes. Here... She needed a, a visa to even leave her country, let alone to get into another one. So she, I mean, those passports must have been the most stamped passports that ever were stamped. She said she managed to hold three Czech passports at the same time because very often her passport was at the embassy waiting for the visa to get put into it. She talked all the time about how when she was on tour and her father was able to secure papers to come see her play overseas, it would still, even at the height of her career, be days before the plane was to leave, mm -hmm. that the paperwork would finally come through. It was never an easy process. It was always something that was held as a threat. If you do not fall in line, stay in line, then these are the, the things that we will do to keep you in check. Get it? Or, oh... <laughs> Yeah, I got it. As a, a top junior, and eventually the top junior in 1978, she's itching to join the main tour. Czech Federation doesn't really want her to, but she qualified for Roland Garros, lost in round two. She still plays the girls' tournament and wins. And now she's really, she's a basically a top 20, top 30 player on the main tour. In the same year, she gets to the girls' final at Wimbledon, plays Tracy Austin, loses to her, and then loses to her seven consecutive times on the main tour. Tracy Austin was a genuine menace at that time. Sure, but if you were also somebody not named Navratilova or Evert, you were doing a lot of losing. Uh, yes. To a lot <laughs> yes. of people in that time. That same year, Hannah achieved her first computer ranking after Wimbledon. This is 1978. Ranking number 72, and that thus gave her direct entry into the U.S. Open. 
That year, she also wins her first two career titles on the main tour in Milan and Barcelona. In 1979, she adds five more titles and reaches the French Open quarterfinals. 1980 is where Hannah's career really takes off. She reaches the final at the US Open in the fall of 1980, beating Navratilova in straight sets in the fourth round. She becomes the first Czech woman to reach the US Open final before even Navratilova reached the final herself. You might say, well, what about Martina? Well, she had defected by 1975, so she wouldn't have counted at that point. But she still hadn't reached the US Open final before Hannah did. In that final, she loses in three sets to Chris Evert. This would become a common plight for Hannah in her career. Chris Evert was a big foe in a lot of these big matches. This started a string of four consecutive Grand Slam finals. She would go on to win the Australian Open later that year, because remember the Australian Open was played after the US Open at that time. She follows that up by winning the very next slam at the French Open in 1981, and then makes the final of Wimbledon as well. So four in a row, winning two. Shortly before this US Open in 1980, she had begun working with the Dutch player Betty Stuve, who was prominent in the 1970s and those early years of the WTA. This was a fascinating description by Hannah in her book of how this went down. Because at that time, Betty was still an active player. And Hannah was canvassing the women's locker room. She even came up with a list of players. (laughs) (laughs) Well, who is old enough who might be thinking about retiring? And how do I say this in a way that's not offensive? Asking them to become my coach. (laughs) And so Betty, after fielding a potential offer from the Dutch Tennis Federation to coach eventually took up Manlikova on her offer. And so for a while, for a good couple of years there, they were playing together at the same time. Betty was a very accomplished doubles player. She won 10 slams in women's and mixed doubles. She made a lot of sacrifices to be Hanna's coach, to be away from home a lot of the time when her singles career was pretty much over. But since Hanna's family could often not be with her and couldn't travel It was lonely, and Betty became like a mother to her. She helped manage her money. They worked together for almost nine years. There were persistent rumors about Stova being a lesbian and that she and Hannah were in a relationship. In this memoir written in 1989, it's the first time that Mandlikova addressed those rumors. We know that Hannah married a man. She was in relationships with men. She seriously dated Nigel Sears. And we also know that she would go on to marry a woman and have twins, one of whom is a current WTA player, Elizabeth Manlik. With Betty Stuva in tow, she wins her first slam, the 1980 Australian Open in November, beating the Australian Wendy Turnbull, 6-love, 7-5. And at the end of the year, she finished number one in the Colgate series, which was a circuit of 39 events. In those days, the season was split between the Avon Championships and the Colgate Series. And the Colgate Series included all of the slams. So she's finishing 1980 as an 18-year-old as one of the top players in the world, having just won her first slam, reaching another slam final. Naturally, when you have this 18-year-old making four straight slam finals, winning two of them, starting to have wins over the two preeminent players on tour, there is bound to be a feverish pitch of excitement around her. And there was. She was written about as the person who would force the changing of the guard at some point. 
that she would become the next Martina, the next number one. And she was frequently asked about Martina's influence, of course. She and Martina had an interesting relationship, certainly a lot of ups and downs, which we'll get to a bit later. But Hannah said that Kodish was really the one who she looked at, the one that people always talk about in Czechoslovakia. It wasn't just the results that had people talking. It was actually watching her have the results, watching her actually play tennis. Her game itself excited people. She was an incredible shot maker, supreme athlete. She was known for her quickness in all directions, her deft touch at net, a formidable serve, and of course, her net play. She had this vicious combination of this slice backhand approach shot followed by a forehand volley that you see frequently in highlights. And it's just a, an explosive game to watch. Sarah Pileggi in Sports Illustrated said, quote, She's an attacker, a servant volleyer in the mold of her countrywoman Martina Navratilova with the athletic grace of Ivan Gulagal. And even if people in the West maybe didn't understand Manlikova, and she could be a tough customer at times. They still thought, uh, hey, this is, you know, this is a genius. This is somebody who knows what to do with a tennis ball. And she was seen in contrast to Yvonne Lindel, who was stoic and tough and not really demonstrative. She was flamboyant. The other thing you see a lot written about Manlikova during this time is a comparison to Lendl at every step of the way. Mm -hmm. And they kind of made it easy for people with their disparate temperaments. Lendl was described as prudent, professional, whereas Manlikova, quote, lives flamboyantly at the other end of the spectrum, sometimes to her disadvantage. British tennis writer Rex Bellamy wrote in World Tennis, quote, Manlikova walks tightropes, Lendl builds bridges. She has all the strokes, great speed, agility, and natural athleticism. Andrea Yeager said, quote, She has probably the best serve of anyone I've ever played. And that was after losing to her in the, in the final of the Volvo Women's Cup in August of 1981. This also goes to show that there has always been talk about who is the next. I know it was particularly fraught with the Williams sisters from the start of their career. <laughs> you know, there was always this quest for the great white hope to save tennis. And then as they got older, it became, well, who is going to be the next charge? Who is going to take over women's tennis in a legitimate way? Who is going to bridge the gap, right? Mm -hmm. This is something that has always existed. And at this inflection point in women's tennis in the early 80s, Hanna Manlikova was squarely thought of as the one. If not based on her results alone, absolutely based on her talent and what people saw in her game. And she proved that. Moving into 1981, she ends this incredible streak of Chris Evert winning 72 straight matches on clay. It's the second longest ever streak, by the way, beaten only by Chris herself. Despite Manlikova's 7-21 record against Chris Evert, she was always very confident about beating her. <laughs> Sometimes almost dismissive about Evert's talent. The way she wrote about Chrissy in her book... Uh, <laughs> it was, it felt a little personal. And this would have been after Chrissy retired, yes, or just about. Short, around the time, basically. Yeah. Hannah says, quote, If you don't make mistakes and keep Chris guessing as to what you're going to do next, she does not have the game to hurt you. Wow, you're talking about a legend. 
somebody who you yourself cannot really beat on a regular basis. <laughs> After this match against Chrissy, the German Federation publicly accused Hana of doping because of how she was able to dig out of these big deficits in each set. I'm not excusing that accusation because that's wild. She was drinking out of an empty tennis ball can. Unusual. She said it was hot tea with sugar and lemon. But can you imagine if that were the case in today's... <laughs> People always ask about, oh, you know, can you imagine if so-and-so happened in today's social media age? Right. This would have had the tennis Twitter girlies shook. Oh, oh, indeed. Uh, her father, as we've said, who was a great athlete, actually discouraged Hana from running track because of how prevalent doping was. And he had had a close friend die from steroid use. And he told her that he would publicly humiliate her and disown her if she ever used PEDs. At the 1981 Wimbledon Championships, Hannah considered withdrawing from her first match because of a painful back injury. And this was probably the first big instance where injury rears its ugly head in her career. A, a real hindrance to her career trajectory. She gets her father on the phone... They decide that she's going to give it a go. She gets all the way to the final. And to get there, with this bad back, she beats Martina Navratilova at Wimbledon before losing to Chrissy in the final. A common theme with Hannah looking back on her career, I say looking back, while she wrote this book, she was still an active player and was hoping to play for a couple of years longer. That did not end up happening. She constantly talks about these big matches where she's dealing with the series of unfortunate injuries at the worst times. So she beat one of them. She beat Martina and then loses to Chrissy in the final. Chrissy won Wimbledon three times. Only three times compared to Martina's nine. But Hannah was the only one for seven years to beat Martina at Wimbledon until Steffi did it in 88. While dealing with this back injury and recovery, Hannah didn't win another title all throughout 1982 and 1983. Even still, she made the final of the U.S. Open and the semis of the French Open in 1982. Hannah is now a top athlete in the world. She's a top women's tennis player, but she is still an athlete operating under the Soviet system. And one of the things that was required of her during this time, not, not just paying a certain amount of your money back to the Federation, but also giving your time to the Federation, and that included Fed Cup. This Czech domination of Fed Cup, part of it started in the in the 80s. Hanna Mandlikova, alongside Helena Sukova, won three consecutive Fed Cup titles from 1983 to 1985. In this year of 2023, the Czech Republic or, and former Czechoslovakia now has 11 Fed Cup titles. The very first was in 1975, shortly before Martina defected. As an athlete now, she's given so many more privileges than most of her fellow citizens. She's allowed to travel. That's really the big one, is the privilege to travel around the world. But athletes under the communist system were still hugely undervalued and underpaid compared to their peers in the West. So immigration was always a fear of the Czech government. And then you have Martina returning to Czechoslovakia for Fed Cup in 1986. And this kind of showed the weakness of the political system. Or at least that the propaganda wasn't working. You know, removing all traces of Martina in the news 
it didn't help. People still knew who she was. People were still proud of her as a fellow Czech person. She received a huge ovation from the crowd when she stepped on court at the start of that tie. She was personally welcomed by Hannah. And of course, this did not sit well with the Czech Federation, right? They tried to put Martina out on an outer court where only a few hundred people could watch. People still flocked to that court to watch. And what can you do if the United States keeps winning rubbers at mm-hmm. this Fed Cup, which is what they did. Led by Martina, the United States beat Czechoslovakia in that final in Prague. At home, right? The Czech team had won three consecutive. They were going for four. And Martina, the prodigal daughter, snaps that streak. They didn't know, and she didn't know, how she would be received when she returned. And it was an ovation, uh, which kind of undermined the government's efforts. Supposedly, the entire leadership of the Tennis Federation and government officials left the stadium (laughs) when she was speaking to show their distaste for what was going on. This happened in 1986. Going back a couple years to the start of 1984, Betty and Hannah's father decided to make her go out to tournaments by herself. They thought that this would be a maturing prospect Mm -hmm. for her. Because she had suffered a real downturn uh, in 82 and 83. There were injuries. Things just weren't clicking on court for her. She won the Virginia Slims of Washington, beating Zena Garrison in the final. In Oakland, she snapped Martina's 54-match win streak. Then she goes on to win in Houston, Dallas, and Boston. Five titles by the end of March, but she wouldn't win another title for the rest of the year. If you know women's tennis, you know what was going on in 1984. Martina Navratilova was was happening. She was at the absolute peak of her powers. And even Hanna said that she felt Martina was playing untouchable tennis at that time. Where she went too far and got herself in hot water was when, after losing to Martina in a three-set match at Roland Garros, Hanna said, quote, it's hard playing against a man I mean, Martina. Not great. Not great. We saw this being done to Amelie Moresmo by Martina Hingis. Yeah, Uh, I mean, this is homophobic, plain and simple. In the book, five years after the fact, Hannah said, quote, I had something on my mind and I wanted to express it. It was typical of me, against sound advice, to be the one who had to raise the subject in public. I do wonder what, why anyone had to raise the subject and what was the subject the subject was that martina had undergone this transformation with nancy lieberman Mm -hmm. as her physical coach her trainer or what have you and she had completely beefed up her body like she had made a, a concerted effort to become as strong as she could be on a tennis court right and comparing her to women tennis players now doesn't you know Fitness has improved even further. She, You know, the fact that people were calling her a man back then is really shocking. And it was deeply homophobic. Hannah says that she feels her father taught her honesty over everything, even diplomacy. And he now regrets it. <laughs> <laughs> she understands that she created trouble for herself because she rarely softened what she thought. The problem for her was that she had to play Martina the next day in doubles. And did you think she was going to be contrite? She should have been. But instead, what she did was to make public He-Man gestures to the crowd during that match. 
She now concedes that it was foolish and immature, but she said that a lot of other players and even the organization of the WTA treated her coldly after the event. Martina wouldn't speak to her. It's very hurtful. Chrissy, she claims, gave her attitude at Wimbledon, making allegedly making her wait after the match. So Hannah just left by herself, which you know is bad at Wimbledon. You're not supposed to do that. Hannah skipped press. And this is all feeding into this impression of Hannah that she's reckless. A wild child. That she's child. mean. And it was mean. But what was uh, not surprising, but what was alarming to me is when Sports Illustrated wrote about the story, they didn't mention the reason that Martina was so mad at Hanna. They didn't mention the content of the of the taunting. Hanna went on to say of Chris Effort, quote, Chris is a great manipulator of the media. Sometimes her on-camera image can be drastically different to what those of us behind the scenes witness. Hanna said that Chris is kind to the new players, but once you become a threat, things can change. What bothers me about Evert is that she doesn't appreciate anybody, never, ever, unless she knows they cannot beat her. Then she says all nice things. <laughs> I mean, Chris was known as the ice queen. Right, right. But also warm to new players. She was part of the movement, right? She believed in the WTA as a collective. But we don't know. We don't know what went on behind the scenes. She was out here writing public letters on behalf of Martina Navratilova. And Billie Jean and King. And Billie Jean King when they were embroiled in scandals of homophobia. Mm-hmm. It... It doesn't fit blanketly here. Of course. But it also fits in with what we know of champions and what they need to do to succeed on court. Mm -hmm. You know, you have this person who is nipping at your heels. Everybody, Pam Shriver goes on to say, everybody knows it's just a matter of time. Like, this is how she's being talked about, right? Mm -hmm. And in the same breath, she's flying off the handle in press, saying everything willy-nilly. Let's not forget, you also said years prior that I don't really know what's the big deal about Chris Everett. She doesn't really do anything to hurt you. <laughs> you know? Does that sound like anyone you know right. from I, today? I would be bitter AF mm-hmm. if some upstart said that about me when I am the Chris Everett. But it's uh, Ostapenko-esque, yes, perhaps? very much. She said, anytime I step on the court, I believe I can beat Chris. The other players don't, and that's the wrong attitude. Same with Martina. And is she wrong? If you, if you want to be the best, you have to believe that you can beat them. But this brashness also came with some slip-ups, some... I mean, that one French Open incident was a really awful behavior, which she recognizes now. In a Sports Illustrated article in 1986, there's this quote, No wonder, while Manlikova is only 5-18 and 18 lifetime against Everett Lloyd and 6-18 and 18 against Navratilova, her record against those two is by far the best on the tour. And that no wonder... By far. By far. And that no wonder is because of her self-belief mm-hmm. and how she talks about her ability to beat these women. You know, I have such affinity, like such a... It's almost endearing to me when she says, quote, when I do something wrong or behave like an idiot, I am immediately repentant. In my early days, I was much worse I would get angry more easily. Nowadays, I misbehave no more than once or twice a year. It's just whenever I do, I seem to attract headlines. I feel that. I feel that. You know, sometimes I uh, speak out of turn, and I do really feel crappy right after. I get it. Time and time again, we see that winning 
rehabilitates images. <laughs> and by the US Open 1985, Ooh. things change because Hannah is about to have the crowning achievement of her career, beating Chrissy Everett in the semifinals and then Martina Navratilova in the final to win the US Open for a second time. Within 24 hours, beating the two. She's the first person to beat the both of them in one tournament since Tracy Austin did it four years earlier. This was back when Super Saturday was a thing. Yes. And so how that played out, for those of you who don't remember, is that on that final championship Saturday, the women's final would be sandwiched in between both men's semifinals. What that meant was you didn't know when you were going on court. Mm -hmm. That was truly effed up. That sucks for, for the women's final. She wins the title alongside her countryman, Yvonne Lendl. This is the continued kind of parallel tracks of the two. And this this was something special. This this tournament, the final. Frank DeFord says, quote, Manlikova began taking the net on the champion's serves instantly, the champion being Martina, and almost with disdain. Often, both players ended up there firing reflex volleys at a few paces. Usually Manlikova prevailed. The comet never flashed brighter. Oh, I love that line. <laughs> In the first set, they were stunned. The crowd was stunned. Hanna goes up five love and is very close to bageling Martina. But Martina battles back and gets to a tie break. And if you're her, you have good reason to think you can win this set. Considering but you have a reputation of choking, you have a reputation of not being able to close out matches, this was... The, the red phone is ringing. This is danger time yeah. for Hannah Monlikova. But she grabs that first set tiebreak 7-3, gets ran over in the second set 1-6, and manages to win the third set in a tiebreak in the most unexpected outcome. And many of her big matches against Martina featured 7-6 sets or 7-5 sets. Pam Schreiber talks about watching this match in her book, Passing Shots which was also released in the 80s. She writes of the match, Now I'm sitting in the hotel watching Chris and Hannah's semi. A US Open should not be decided on a tiebreaker. For the second time in five years, Martina lost the Open 7-6 in the third. I've got to hand it to Hannah, though. She never folded. Hannah has been a sleeping volcano for years, ever since she won the French Open and the Australian Open in her teens. She has been an inconsistent player and a moody person for the last several years, but her talent has always been undeniable. God help the rest of us now. This was after Pam had called Hannah a wacko. <laughs> and Hannah, in 1989, still remembered that because yeah, she... Wasn't over it. Was not over it. Pam went on to say, I've never seen Martina so upset after a loss. She barely managed to get through the award ceremonies. In the deserted locker room, she flung her rackets at the wall and burst into tears. I never saw her like this before. I tried to console her by getting drinks and putting cold towels on her face, but she was just devastated. Martina feels the most pressure when she plays a fellow Czech, and if there's anyone in women's tennis who is a better athlete than Martina, it's Hanna. Well, following this 1985 U.S. Open, at least in the reporting at the time, it felt like they sensed a sea change. You know, that the time was afoot for Hanna to finally, finally maximize her potential. Frank DeFord said she was some whimsical genius 
but it may be hard to believe that she's only 23. She's made more Grand Slam finals and won more than the great Navratilova had at the same age. But still there was that expectation that she would also squander that amazing potential in a match. Back to Pam and Hannah. In Hannah's book, she says about Pam, I feel that Pam does not like to play against me because I am too unpredictable. In a book Shriver wrote, she described me as, quote, wacko. But I'm not mad at her about that. Pam doesn't know me that well because I never gave her a chance to. It's like, okay, that's mature. She then goes on to say, I think that Pam sometimes has a big mouth. Game recognized game. (laughs) Which gets her into controversies in the media. But she's not a bad girl. What I mean is that for someone with such a modest record in the singles game, she has appeared in only one Grand Slam final, Pam has much to say. Of course, she's one of the greatest doubles players in the world, and I willingly concede that she's a person, a quote, personality, and that is what the tennis world needs. The Ostapenko jumped that out. That shade is wild. It is. <laughs> and these are women who went on to play doubles together. Right. At certain points, like, <laughs> I get the, the sense that the tour in the 80s, well, from the inception, was just wild. Oh, yeah. And uh, these are active players competing against each other. They're, I'm sure everything softens as time goes on. The kind of the untapped potential of Hano's career is something that people talk about quite a bit, right? After winning that 1985 US Open, which was seen as her crowning achievement, It was the finally she's done this. Uh, She only won one more slam. The 1987 Australian Open. After that US Open win, she loses seven finals in a row in 85 and 86 until Brisbane, December of 86. Now the Australian Open is in January. It's the final time it'll be hosted at Kuyong on grass. And Hannah beats Laurie McNeil in a double bagel in the quarterfinals saying that she's reached the peaks of her powers. She beats Claudia Koda-Kilsch in three sets in the semis, and then finally meets Martina Navratilova again, and for the final time in a grass court final. Martina had won their last nine meetings at this point. Think about how many times they met between fall of 85, where Hannah wins that US Open. And this is now January right. 87. It's- And Martina has won nine in a row. In barely 16 months. Hannah wins 7-5, 7-6, and Martina says she's never played worse in a final in her life. (laughs) And Hannah says, that's fine. I get to go on stage with Lionel Richie, (laughs) which is what she did after winning the final. And she danced all night long. Exactly. 1988 Australian Open, Hannah is a defending champion, and she's playing her first Australian Open as an Australian citizen and was touched to participate in the opening ceremony for the new National Tennis Center. She loses in the quarterfinals to Stephanie Graf. And it's like, oh, you know, when I do these episodes, we learn so much about someone, I gain so much empathy for them. I'm rooting for them retroactively. I also never like to say that somebody didn't fulfill what they were supposed to, because Hannah is one of the great players of the open era. She just happened to be playing Steffi Graf, who is hatching and snatching right it's her golden olympic year nobody knew that (laughs) in january 1988 but here she is taking out hana in the quarterfinals and she would barely lose that year definitely not in the biggest matches hana was still young 
She was 26 in 1988. She felt that there were a lot of years ahead of her. But Steffi Groff kind of swoops in and she grabs that title of the next one who's going to, to emerge from the Everett Navatilova domination. The next few years of Hanna's career are just troubled by injury. She tore her hamstring shortly after that Australian Open. She didn't play the Olympics. But that was by choice. Yes. She was slandered badly back home in Czechoslovakia because they did add her to the team automatically. But she was now an Australian citizen. And slandered unfairly because she was no longer a Czech citizen. Because reasonably, she would represent her new country. It just so happened that she didn't meet the requirements of having played in prior Fed Cup ties for Australia to then play for Australia in the Olympics. And she felt that would be super hypocritical of me to having just taken the oath as Australian citizen to then a few months later play tennis for Czechoslovakia. But that nuance was definitely not going to be presented by the Czech Federation. Right. In 1989, when she was writing her memoir, her career was in this strange period where she felt, uh, you know, I'm I'm building back up. I really want to make another push for greatness. I know I don't have a lot of years left. She had taken most of 88 off, didn't play much tennis. In 1989, Pam and Martina are no longer playing doubles together. And guess what? Hannah and Martina are on better terms than they were in the mid-80s. They double up at the U.S. Open in 1989, winning the doubles title. That was the same U.S. Open where Chrissy Everett retired. It was a a pivotal U.S. Open. And this would be the last title of any kind of Hannah's career. She would then go on to retire in 1990. When she was writing the book, the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia had not happened yet, or it was in the midst of happening in 1989. And what this was was a nonviolent but a massive radical change from a communist state to a democratic parliamentary republic. The Soviet Union was in the middle of collapsing. Many of the satellite states were gaining independence. Finally, in 1992, Czechoslovakia splits into the Czech Republic and the Slovak Republic, with capitals in Prague and Bratislava. On a broader sense, as far as Czech tennis goes, there were new challenges because there was no central planned economy. The support for sports had evaporated. And now you have this free market economy that's based on competition. A lot of players and coaches took this opportunity to leave. But after a few years, the membership in the Czech Tennis Association actually rebounded to pre-1989 levels. Tennis is again seen as an elite sport, like in Poland, lower classes begin to be excluded due to the increased costs. So we have another shift, right? Yes, to a capitalist system. National subsidies go to, quote, national sporting centers, but the costs are still prohibitively high early in juniors for many people. But some of that infrastructure still remains after the Velvet Revolution. There's still this this great network of just modest, regular tennis clubs across the country uh, in I mean, in 1981, there were 650 clubs. There were 50,000 people playing tennis in these clubs across Czechoslovakia. And so this is a system that you already have in place, even after the country becomes capitalist, it splits in two. But this is what you see feeding the juniors and the national teams to this day. 
Hannah finishes her playing career in 1990, but she is by no means done with tennis. She goes on to coach Yana Novotna for the rest of her career. The rest of Yana's career, Mm -hmm. I should say. Hannah finished her career with head-to-heads of 7-29 against Martina, 7-21 against Chrissy, 1-8 against Steffi, 8-2 against Pam, 2-7 against Tracy Austin, 8-6 against Andre Yeager. I think, I mean, Yeager did not play tennis for that long. Still, Mm -hmm. 14 matches. Zena Garrison, 9-4. Helena Sokova, 12-2. Wendy Turnbull, 9-6. And Gabby Sabatini, 5-2. and two. Those head-to-heads against Martina and Chrissy, nobody had good head-to-heads against them. So seven wins for each is pretty good. And the way that she did it, beating Martina in two slam finals, beating Evert in, uh, in two of those slam runs as well. Hannah said of Yana Novotna, quote, I remember that we were preparing at Saddlebrook in Florida. I didn't really know Yana then, But we all went running in the morning and she was whining about it. So I said, get your ass up and let's go. Then one day we were at lunch by the pool and she was complaining about something else. So I just got up and pushed her into the pool. She had all her clothes on and she was even holding her camera. She was pretty mad, but she got the point about being a team player. (laughs) (laughs) Ma'am. As it turned out, Yana found in Hana what Hana found in Betty. This unusual, long-term, career-long partnership of player and coach. And in that time, Hannah coached Yana through some of the most difficult periods any tennis player has ever experienced. Chief of these is the 1993 Wimbledon final, where Yana led, where Yana led Steffi a set 4-1, and I believe 40-15. Loses that match collapses on the duchess's shoulder in tears of that moment hannah said quote the funny thing about that is that yana was devastated for two days after that match i was devastated for a month (laughs) as a coach hannah got to finally do what she was never able to do during her career what's that win wimbledon yep leading or assisting yana novotna in that career capping win in 1998 over Natalie Toziat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I was going to confidently say, but I forgot. <laughs> and for me, I see quite a bit of similarity in both their games. Mm-hmm. They were both impeccable volleyers. Both loved serve and volleying. Yana pretty much exclusively. I think Hana had a lot more flexibility in whether she could play from the back of the court for a spell or two. And I saw a lot of similarities in the elaborateness, the flair, the extravagance of their service motions. If you get a chance, just look up on YouTube, Hannah Madlikova, her highlights, they are truly explosive. They're so much fun to watch because there are so few people who play like her these days. And the equipment makes that difficult, of course. But her touch, her speed, and just creativity is fascinating to watch. These days, Hannah is a coach to her daughter, Ella Mandlik, who is a WTA player, currently ranked number 112, but had a a big breakout, I think a year and a half ago, people started to discover who she was. Ellie's twin brother, Mark Mandlik, is a tennis player as well. He played at University of Oklahoma. He has a career-high ITF ranking of 97. Hannah had had the twins in 2001, 
She said at the time that she wouldn't disclose who the father was, but she's raising her children with her partner, Sydney Biller, in Florida. The kids briefly studied at the Balateri Academy when they were 10 years old, but they moved to the United Tennis Academy, which is close by, for more private instruction. So next time you see the younger Mandlik on a tennis court, look for Hannah in the stands. <laughs> she joins Tracy Austin as a player from that era who is now mom of an up-and-coming player on tour. Mm-hmm. Having never seen her play live, it was so much fun to watch videos. It's such a, a resource and a gift that these videos exist on YouTube. And I think a lot of them are from a Manlikova super fan. And he actually appeared on Fantastic Tennis Podcast alongside host John Garica when Hannah came on that show. Oh. I think a year or a year and a half ago. So that's mm. another resource for you if you want to hear more from Hannah herself, perhaps more contemporary stuff. I mean, we we covered mostly from 1989 and prior to that mm-hmm. on this show. But that, that, that gentleman is responsible for that archive on YouTube. And that oh, is such a gift. Before, can you imagine before internet streaming, you had to like wait around during rain delays and stuff? For ESPN to play old matches? It's hard not to get wrapped up in this what-if business with a player like Hana. Mm-hmm. What would her career have looked like without all the injuries? What would her career have looked like if she weren't so hot-headed, if she weren't such a volatile person emotionally, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and what really could she have achieved in that era? Could the head-to-head have been even... Against Chrissy or Martina, possibly. Mm-hmm. Could she have won five or six more? We could be thinking of her as a double-digit slam winner. People would then maybe look at that era as more competitive than they do now. Because one of the drawbacks when people try and frame Chrissy or Martina as one of the greats before Steffi and Serena made that a, a moot argument, right? One of the drawbacks was, well... They didn't really play in a very strong era. You go back and you look at the draws outside of the semis. They didn't really play anybody tough to get there. But if you have another double-digit slam winner, you know, Mm -hmm. if you have five or six more epic finals, does that era look any different at all? And we can what if, uh, what if she was born at a different time or in a different country? Would she have won more or less? Or if... She hadn't had that back injury in the early 80s, but it's so useless. And we went through this when we talked about Monica Seles, her career after 1995. People what if that, of course, uh, the greatest what if in tennis. But she did a great job even after that. You know, she won a slam. She's consistently in the later stages of slams. She played top 10 tennis into the 2000s. Right. It is... Uh, beating your head against a wall to say what if i appreciate the career of hana madlikova the four-time slam winner the best player to never reach number two and number one she also called into question the legitimacy of the computer system and the rankings yes in those times because she thought how in the hell can i make four straight slam finals and still be ranked number five Make that make sense. Number five. Make that make sense. That was the original. She won Roma Madrid. And looking back, it's crazy. I mean, I don't know how the computer worked. 
back then. <laughs> Maybe that's another deep dive episode. But that seems wild. More than one final note is that increasingly this is my favorite era of tennis to look back mm. on. It's littered with names of people I recognize and know, even if I didn't watch them play, they're still prominent in tennis now. Their records, their presence are still relevant. And it was a bustling time in women's tennis. Yes, in in both men's and women's tennis. And I find it's easier to appreciate people you didn't really, you didn't grow up with. You didn't develop fan relationships with them because you were not born yet. And especially people who are not particularly vocal now. You could go your whole life as a tennis fan and not hear Hanuman Likova on TV. It's so much easier to gain an appreciation for them because you don't really have a rooting interest. You can just watch. That brings us to the end of our latest foray into the history books. Mm -hmm. This is episode 325. It's kind of a postscript of season nine. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. As always, you can find everything BodyServe related at linktree.com slash thebodyserve, including ways to support the show if you are so inclined. We appreciate you listening and reviewing. Till next time. The ball was good. I don't know. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>